Bible has been God's word to his people for millennia. Yet increasingly, people question whether the events it records are actual history. But the Bible's claims stand up to scrutiny. Coming up, we're going to look at 50 fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life, visuals that bring further evidence. We'll also cover all the headlines from the Middle East, answer your Bible questions, and share a brief, encouraging devotional. That's all part of the adventure we call The Land and the Book. Welcome. Dr. Charlie Dyer, nationally recognized Middle East authority, is our host and guide. And I'm John Geiger. You know, Charlie, many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. And while some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. That's right, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land in the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me, Charlie Dyer. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's swing our focus toward a look at current events from the week. This was the Jewish festival of Sukkot this past week, which we know as the Feast of Tabernacles. With a corresponding slowdown in news out of Israel, let's take time to look at news events from around the whole region. Our first story focuses on excavations in Jordan, which an expert says offers compelling evidence that an asteroid destroyed the biblical cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How likely is this claim, Charlie? You know, this claim, John, has been made before, and it's now reappeared in the Jerusalem Post this last week. At first, it sounds very appealing to those of us who believe the Bible. A Bronze Age city just across the Jordan River from Jericho shows evidence of violent destruction by fire. It includes pottery shards coated with trinitite, a glassy substance formed when an atomic bomb detonates in the desert, and skeletons intact up to the mid-spine but with only scorch marks remaining above. The archaeologists date the destruction of the city to about 1650 B.C. and suggest it was wiped out by a cosmic airburst that had about a thousand times the energy of the atomic blast that destroyed Hiroshima. Now, this all sounds compelling, but there are serious problems that the article fails to deal with. The first is the date. While the date given by the archaeologists is approximate, it's still at odds with the more precise chronology of the Bible. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 took place just after Abraham and Sarah were told she would give birth to Isaac. Isaac was born in 2066 BC. That's over 4,000 years ago, but by the Bible's reckoning, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed just over 400 years before the date offered for this site. That's a major time gap. The second problem is the site's just over 13 miles from Old Testament Jericho. If an asteroid produced a blast a thousand times greater than Hiroshima, wouldn't its impact also have devastated Jericho? Well, that's never dealt with. In Genesis 19.25, it says God overthrew the cities and the entire plain. If this site is biblical Sodom, how could Jericho, also on the plain, not have been impacted by that blast? And finally, the Bible says Lot and his family escaped from Sodom in the night and fled to the city of Zoar. But Zoar is located at the other end of the Dead Sea, 55 miles south of Tel el-Hammam. Lot said Zoar was a town, quote, near enough to run to but that doesn't fit this site on the northern end of the Dead Sea. 
Tel El Hammam is a city that was destroyed by a great fire around 1650 BC, but that doesn't make it Sodom. In this case, it's best to stick with all the details found in the Bible, which place Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the plain at the southeastern end of the Dead Sea. Story number two reports on the flooding that devastated parts of Libya have largely disappeared from the news. But what impact has the flood had on Libya economically, politically, and in the toll on human lives? Uh, John, the the impact has been enormous. According to the Libyan Red Crescent, more than 11,300 people were killed in the flooding, with another 10,000 still missing. Now, the number of missing will likely come down, you know, as bodies are discovered and as individuals reported missing become reunited with family and friends. But that total could still end up above 15,000, which is significant for a country with a population of less than 7 million. Concerns remain over the threat of waterborne disease and the shifting of explosives caught in the flood and carried downstream. Politically, the two rival governments in Libya have temporarily set aside their conflict to focus on helping those in need. However, it's unclear if this could be the basis for future unity or if it's just a temporary lull in the ongoing tensions. Sixteen officials in Libya have been detained as part of the investigation into the collapse of the two dams. The dams were built in the mid-70s and hadn't undergone any maintenance since about 2002. Hmm. About a quarter of Derna, the city of 100,000, was wiped out. The U.S. ambassador to Libya says the ultimate solution to the country's problems need to be national elections to produce a unified government. However, he doesn't see that taking place anytime soon. He said the reality in Libya is that the country is divided, and he also expressed concern about the unrest in neighboring Niger, impacting Libya's ongoing conflict. At a time when Libya needs to come together to heal its divisions and help its own citizens recover, we're not seeing that happening. And Sadly, that is continuing to impact the country in a very negative way. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, a one-hour flyover of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger, and on this opening segment, we'd like to walk you through current events throughout the Middle East region. Story number three, Egypt finally announced specific dates for their upcoming presidential election. When will that election be held, and how is the race shaping up politically? Egypt's National Election Authority announced that the presidential elections will be held outside Egypt on December 1 to 3 and then inside Egypt December 10 to 12. In the event of a runoff, the subsequent election will be held January 5 to 7 for those outside Egypt and January 8 to 10 for those living in Egypt. The country is trying to do all it can to ensure the openness and fairness of the election process. The National Election Authority has vowed to follow the Constitution and the laws when it comes to guaranteeing equality of opportunity for all candidates. Egypt's largest media conglomerate vowed to maintain neutrality in covering the upcoming election, saying all its channels, newspapers, and websites will maintain equal distance from all candidates. The National Council for Persons with Disabilities announced the launch of ballots in Braille to provide an opportunity for those who are visually impaired to participate in the elections. In terms of how things are shaping up politically, so far seven individuals have declared their candidacy for president. This doesn't yet include President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who hasn't yet officially announced his candidacy. One leading opposition figure has been sentenced to prison and barred from running, though he's currently appealing his conviction. But the big unknown remains President el-Sisi. 
If he runs, and most are expecting him to do so, he will likely win the vote by a large margin. Numerous political parties and unions have already expressed their support for him, and they're encouraging him to run for another term. He'll likely announce his decision either way in the next few weeks. Charlie, why two and three days for the whole length of the election? Seems like that would open things up. What do we not understand about Egypt and their need to go two and three days for an election rather than just one? Uh, They just have such poor infrastructure uh, that it takes people time to get off work, to be able to find the public transportation, to get to the voting sites. Uh, The way they handle things is uh, they have a blue die there. And once you vote, you put your finger in the die and it it stays on your finger for for quite a while. So it's uh, they have a pretty good system against uh, somebody voting twice, but it just takes that long to make sure everybody has an opportunity to vote. Okay. Our fourth story, anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer and searching for clinical trials can face a daunting task at a rather stressful time in life for sure. But now an Israeli company has launched Tara, an artificial intelligence program designed to match up cancer patients with clinical trials. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. You know, this is a nifty innovation from a company called Belong.Life. Tara is a chatbot designed to match patients to clinical trials. It conversationally requests essential information from the patient, like you know, your diagnosis, cancer type, mutation, treatment history. The program then uses machine learning and natural language processing algorithms to analyze all available cancer clinical trials and to match them to patients based on their unique situation and geographic location. There are currently more than 136,000 clinical trials available in the United States, and trying to find one that's a good match for a person is just difficult for the average individual. The sites are often hard to navigate, and the specific criteria are often hard to decipher. Uh, nearly half of all oncology patients aren't even aware that clinical trials for them might be a viable option. Tara is available as a software-as-a-service solution for medical providers, hospitals, and health systems. Uh, it's something they can embed into their websites and mobile apps to make it available to patients. Anyone listening who's interested in this latest innovation from Amazing Israel, here's what to do. Contact your oncologist and ask them to investigate Tara, T-A-R-A, from Belong.Life. See if they can make this software chat bot available to you and for all their other patients. Or they can simply Google Tara, T-A-R-A, and Belong.Life for more details. And that's a look at current events throughout the entire Middle East region. Coming up, 50 fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life. Straight ahead here on The Land and the Book. Bible has been God's word to his people for millennia. Yet increasingly, people question whether the events it records are actual history. But the Bible's claims stand up to scrutiny every time. Up next, a look at 50 fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I hope you enjoyed our look a few moments ago at current events. And right now, we need to recharge our batteries with ideas for sharing Christ with a Jewish friend. So there you are having a conversation with your Jewish friend and things get into the nitty gritty and, and you're asking yourself, how different is Judaism as practiced today from the instructions that God gave Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai? Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. How, how different is it, Wes? Judaism has diverse expressions from the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, to reform and even reconstructioning Judaism. 
When we open the New Testament, we see how the Jewish religious practice developed during the Babylonian captivity. Rabbis and synagogues, Pharisees and Sadducees, nowhere found in the Old Testament. Many prominent Jewish customs, such as wearing kippahs, the yarmulke or skullcap, and lighting Sabbath candles, are not found in the Torah. Most significantly, the temple, as well as the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices, they're completely missing in Judaism today. Okay, Wes, how does this understanding help us in sharing our faith with a Jewish coworker or neighbor today? Our goal is not to tear down Judaism or hold up Christianity as a model religion to adopt. Our purpose is always to present the person of Messiah Yeshua and his atoning sacrifice and resurrection from the dead as God's provision for our redemption. I love it. Presenting Yeshua, that's the issue. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Professor Tom Meyer is a Christian guest speaker at churches and conferences where he presents the Bible spoken dramatically from memory in an engaging way. He's also a professor at Shasta Bible College. Most folks know him as the Bible Memory Man. He's written the Memorization Study Bible and numerous commentaries. We're glad to have him back on The Land and the Book. Thanks for rejoining us, Tom. Thanks for having me. You have a passion for biblical archaeology that is unceasing. And now you come out with a beautiful hardcover book, Archaeology and the Bible, 50 Fascinating Finds that Bring the Bible to Life. Tom, people do seem to question the Bible's authority and its authenticity more and more. So was that the sole motivation for this project, or did you have other reasons? Well, I had two reasons. Uh, One was to use it as an, an apologetic to share the faith with those who we come into circles with and to point out to them that over and over again, whenever archaeologists have discovered an object, it fits hand in glove with the biblical narrative. There is no discrepancy between the two. And then on the other hand, I also designed the book because I went to a bachelor's degree for Bible and theology at Shasta Bible College. And, and after the bachelor's degree, I went to school to do two master's degrees in Jerusalem. But while I was studying in Jerusalem, I was learning all of these new things that demonstrate the reliability and the accuracy of Scripture from archaeology, and and I hadn't heard about this, John, my whole life going to church. I hadn't even heard about most of it in undergrad, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, if, if I don't know these truths that are out there that demonstrate the reliability of Scripture, then I'm sure most of my friends and family don't either, and that's what I discovered. Right. So it was, number one, is an apologetic outreach, and then number two, to equip the saints. Well, there are hundreds of photos in this book. In fact, I would go so far as to say the photos are almost the stars of this production, and your well-researched and well-written text are more like supporting cast members. How do you react to that assessment? (laughs) I love it. It's perfect, and it's true that the pictures are worth a thousand words. Yeah. I mean, we trace the the, the archaeological, uh, kind of like the proof in the pudding, for all the way from the time of Abraham, all the way to the time of the Lord Jesus. And like you mentioned at the get-go there, just outlining 50 of these famous finds, which maybe the audience doesn't yeah. know about, and helping them to realize that, you know what, there, there's even archaeological proof that Samson existed outside the Bible. And I would like to say real quick, we don't need archaeology to prove the Bible. The Bible stands on its own. You know that, and I know that. And every word of God is pure. But even though archaeology, we don't need it to prove the Bible, it does, like we said at the get-go, help us with our apologetics and reaching out to neighbors and helping build up our own faith. The photos, though, do offer a fair amount of proof. And I have to ask, how big a challenge was it to assemble this amazing collection of images? Did you encounter opposition, legal snares, that kind of thing? There were some struggles along the way. (laughs) But we were able to get every single picture that we needed to correlate 
with the description of the object in the text. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. You and I are enjoying the company of Tom Meyer, who presents the Bible spoken dramatically from memory in an engaging way. Also a professor at Shasta Bible College, he's put together 50 fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life. I want to go to number 17 on your list, the Holy of Holies. Today, it's covered by the famous gold-colored Dome of the Rock. But your book includes an amazing photo that represents, pardon the pun, rock-solid evidence for the Bible. Describe what we see in that overhead shot. Well, to make a long story short, there shouldn't be any debate of where the temple was and where the Holy of Holies was. That's because the stones cry out. And uh, if you're able to go into the Dome of the Rock, which you're not able to do so today, you can see if you know what you're looking at, among other things, John, the basin that was cut out of the bedrock where the Ark of the Covenant once stood which is phenomenal. Think of that. I mean, when they placed the Ark in the Holy of Holies, they wouldn't have placed it ideally just on the stone itself because of an earthquake came or there was tremors, the Ark might have tipped or something like that. So they dug out this little basin into the floor, which is the exact size of the Ark. And not only that, we have the remains of the walls of the Holy of Holies on that rock itself. And those dimensions of the remains of the walls, the escarpments, they're the exact size that the Bible lays out for us in the Torah. So once again, we have another example that we should just take God at his word. (laughs) The temple was on Mount Moriah, and there really was a holy place and a holy of holies and an ark under the covenant, just like the text says. And that's a real big to-do kind of today, because there's this big thing out there nowadays that the Jewish people do not have any religious and historical claims to the land, which of course is just nonsense. And these remains, what they do is they back up the biblical text to demonstrate that the Jewish people really do have the historical and religious claims to the land. Archaeological evidence has affirmed the existence of two of the main players in the accusation, trial, and death of Jesus. Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest at the time, and Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Judea. Tom, what visual evidence do we have for these guys? It's amazing, John, it really is. Uh, Both of them were quote-unquote chance finds. Uh, In the 1960s, uh, archaeologists were were sprucing up and working at the theater at Caesarea Maritime on the coast, and I'm sure some of our friends listening right now have been there before. And uh, to make a long story short there, they found in secondary usage a stone that has basically a plaque that has the name Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea on it. We have another character, as you mentioned, from the narrative of the account of Christ's passion, and that's Caiaphas, the high priest. Another chance occurrence was Israeli kind of like the forest department was uh, working and one of their tires just kind of caved into the earth. And upon further investigation, they determined that the tire fell through the top of a, you know, just a few inches of earth on the top of the Cenomanian limestone there. The temple went right through what was a huge cave underneath that. And in that cave, lo and behold, was the bone box or what's called the ossuary of Caiaphas the high priest that had his name written on his bone box, John. Mm. It's absolutely amazing. Tom Meyer has memorized complete books of the Bible, not one or two or three either. No wonder they call him the Bible memory man. He's also an enthusiastic student of biblical archaeology, joins us today on The Land and the Book, where we're talking about his latest book, 50 Fascinating Finds that bring the Bible to life. Well, here's one fascinating find that kind of blew my mind. You talk about the personal seal of Isaiah the prophet. Obviously, when we say seal, 
We're not talking about a zoo creature. So just what was discovered? What was it used for? And where was it found? Wow. This is another one, John. Well, in 2018, archaeologists were digging in what's called the Ophal. And that's that kind of raised up area between the city of David and the Temple Mount. And um, because they use this certain type of high pressure, almost like a power washer, when you power wash the driveway or the house, they, they use that nowadays. And, and this can kind of knock the clumps of mud off of something that might be concealed inside. So they kind of ran this stuff through the conveyor. They didn't, you know, they didn't see anything special with this dirt, but they ran it through it anyways. And lo and behold, after the, the pressure washer knocked all the mud off of it, they found a seal. And we remember from Sunday school and et cetera that, you know, seals were used to buy and sell things of significance and to mark out letters and stuff like that. But the seal, it says, now some of it's broken, but it says this, it says Isaiah the prof. (laughs) Well, what else could it be? (laughs) Except the one and the only Isaiah the prophet. And not only that, they found the seal in 2015, just a few feet away of Hezekiah the king. His own personal seal. So just within a few feet, lo and behold, they find two seals that mention two of the most famous characters in ancient Israelite history. All right, here's the third seal. Your book shows a photo of the remarkably well-preserved seal of Jezebel. Some background here, Tom. Well, this one is a little different than the Hezekiah seal or the Isaiah seal. Those were found by archaeologists in what we call in situ, S-I-T-U, or It was frozen in the sands of time until archaeologists discovered it. The Jezebel seal, on the other hand, was purchased by the Israeli Antiquities Authority through the, not I don't want to say black market, it wasn't that, but kind of through non-traditional means. And so we don't know where it was found. We don't know uh, when it was found. All we know is that it's legitimate after thorough scrutiny, and that on this actual seal, we have, once again, even though it's fragmented, a little bit of it's broken off, it's still crystal clear that it says Jezebel on it. And it's very clear that it's a feminine kind of flavored seal. It's very royal. So that's one of another between like 50 and 100 people that we found those person's name on an object buried in the earth. And even such famous and infamous characters as Jezebel. Do you ever scratch your head asking, why aren't skeptics, non-believers more impacted by all this powerful visual archaeological evidence. Surely they don't think these photos are manufactured from nothing. So why do we so rarely hear testimonies from folks who say, wow, all that archaeological evidence was just too overpowering. I had to believe. Why don't we hear more of that? Well, that's a good question. And uh, number one is it reminds me in Luke chapter 16 with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And I don't have it memorized, if that's okay. But (laughs) as you remember from the account, the rich man pleads that Lazarus can be sent back from the dead, remember that? Mm -hmm. To demonstrate the power of God and, and to warn his family of what awaits them. And if you remember, it says... No, I'm not going to send you back from the dead. They have the law. They have the Torah. They have the Bible. So even if we were to find Noah's Ark, skeptics, the world, they still wouldn't believe. Even if one come back from the dead, they wouldn't yeah. believe, like that Luke account. So the power, as you know, is in the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word, and the Holy Spirit working through the Word is what does the work. All right, I've commented on some of my favorites. What's one of your favorites of the 50 fascinating finds? Well, I love the things that have to do with Samson. (laughs) You know, Samson, from the period of the judges, he's ruling and reigning in 
1300 BC. That's a long time ago, John. <laughs> and next to Samson's hometown of Zora at a place called Bet Shemesh. Some of the listeners may have been there before. But archaeologists discovered this tiny little seal in 2012. And on the seal, John, that dates from the time of Samson, there's a picture of a strong man, presumably Samson, confronting a lion without a weapon in his hand. That's absolutely amazing that thousands and thousands of years later, these stones still cry out that God's word is true. Yeah. Well, assuming archaeologists continue at their current pace, how soon before you might be able to create a sequel? 50 more fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life. We know there are many sites being looked at. Any thoughts there? For sure. There are enough to make another 50. That is true. And, you know, it's every day. It just seems, so to speak, right, that they're always finding something that relates to or that confirms the biblical account. And that's one of the reasons we'd like to go to Israel, right, and to visit it and to to walk where Jesus walked. And the mountains haven't changed, so to speak, right? The lakes haven't changed. The rivers haven't changed. The topography is still very similar. So when we go there, you know, to be able to experience almost like a fifth gospel, quote, unquote, right, so to speak, the land, and then to be equipped with our biblical knowledge and our archaeological knowledge, it just helps kind of make the text I know it's already alive, don't get me wrong. I know it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, but it almost makes the text kind of like, almost like technicolor, you know, yes. like 4D. And um, that's one of the advantages that we have today is, and if we can't go there, then we can always look at these amazing pictures and books like this and, and to teach our children and our children's children that the Word of God really is true. That's a great way to land this conversation. I want to say thanks to Tom Meyer, who has put together 50 fascinating finds that bring the Bible to life. A link to Tom's ministry to that book as well at our website, thelandandthebook.org. And we're looking forward to Charlie Dyer's coming to the studio with a fresh, big, powerful, tall stack of questions. Maybe one of them is yours next on The Land and the Book. Wow, hard to believe that October is here in full swing and marching on, actually. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, can you believe we're just about three-fourths done with the year? I know it. This year has been flying by. Well, you know, many of us wonder what the future holds, not just for ourselves, but for Israel. And while some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. That's right. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the church living in the last days. They're now making the videos of that conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on the topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Rodelnik and me. Uh, These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. Now, to access this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. This segment is all about questions and answers. Your questions about the Bible, prophecy in the Middle East, and Charlie's answers. They come to us via email, and I'll share our address in a moment. First, let's get started with Nancy's question. Has the Lord fulfilled Jeremiah 51.37, or is this destruction yet to come? In verse 52, it ends with the account of the king of Judah being treated well until his death in Babylon. Can you clear this up for me? Yeah, and uh, i got to be real careful here because I, 
Uh, I can babble on about Babylon more than anybody ever wants to hear. Uh, I believe Jeremiah's prediction of Babylon's destruction in chapters 50 and 51 is still future. I say that for two basic reasons. First, what he says about Babylon's fall was never fulfilled historically. Uh, He uses the phrase, in those days and at that time, that is, the day and time Babylon's falling, here's other things that'll happen. And he says, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah will return to the land and seek the Lord their God and experience God's removal of their sin and uh, enter into a covenant with God. That didn't happen after Babylon's destruction in the past. He says God will overthrow Babylon as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells the people to flee or they're going to be destroyed. Well, Daniel was there the night it fell to the Medo-Persians. He didn't flee. Uh, In fact, he had a copy of the book of Jeremiah we know from Daniel 9. So uh, he didn't seem to think that was the fulfillment. Uh, Jeremiah predicts that Babylon will be so devastated, not even a stone will be removed from it to build elsewhere, which is not true. And of course, Jeremiah said after the judgment, it would be without inhabitant. Well, actually, historically, it became a minor city, but there's never a time when it was not inhabited, even down to when I visited there uh, a couple decades ago. Uh, Now, all of that to say, Jeremiah's prophecy, I think, is still future. And as I've traced Babylon's history, I've just never found a time when what he says was fulfilled. But in fact, I think Isaiah 13 and 14, Zechariah 5, verses 5 to 11, and Revelation 17 and 18 all join with Jeremiah 50 and 51, and they point to Babylon's future existence and destruction in the day of the Lord. Fred takes us to Galatians 3.17, which mentions that the law was given 430 years after the giving of the promise, which would be the Abrahamic covenant. But the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years prior to the law being given to Moses. The Abrahamic covenant was given much earlier than the 430 years mentioned in Galatians. Can you please help me sort this all out? Yeah, I've got to start with uh, the the fixed date. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41 say, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all God's people left Egypt. Now that's a clear chronological marker. So in light of that, I need to try and understand what Paul's saying there in Galatians 3.17. He says in verse 15, he's using an example from everyday life or speaking in terms of human relations. So he's trying to present an argument or an analogy based on something he expects his audience to understand. And I think what he's saying is he talks about the original promise spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And while Paul then applies seed to Jesus, in actual fact, uh, what I think uh, the, the historical pattern he's giving is Uh, God gave the promise to Abraham and to his physical descendants, the patriarchs. Uh, God repeated that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, God repeated it again to Jacob at Beersheba as he was leaving the promised land to take all his family to Egypt. That's Genesis 46 verses 1 to 3. Now, here's why I think that's important. Paul's comparing two covenants. The first is the one given to Abraham and his seed, and the second is the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai, and he lumps Abraham and his seed all together and says that was given 430 years before the promise at Sinai. Uh, In actual fact, uh, I think he's giving a round number because uh, Egypt left and about a year later, so 431 years after they went into Egypt, they received the Mosaic covenant. But I see Paul giving a rough idea there. They went into Egypt 430 years later, they received the Mosaic covenant. And as long as we understand the covenant given to Abraham and his seed, referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then it all seems to make sense. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a man who loves the Word and loves your questions, which are welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. 
Chris says, I've heard some theologians state that the unforgivable sin cannot be committed today. I don't disagree with that, but if so, then I wonder what the purpose is for that sobering subject being mentioned in the Bible. Well, I see Jesus' words in Matthew 12 having specific reference to his ministry and its rejection by the religious leaders. It's understandable that people were confused about the person and work of Christ. Even his disciples didn't fully comprehend everything. But while they might not have fully understood, uh, the religious leaders weren't able to deny the power and the authority he was displaying. And it came to a head when Jesus cast the demons out of the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Uh, Isaiah 35 made it clear that when God came, the eyes of the blind would be opened, the mute tongue would shout for joy. The people saw what Jesus did and said, could this be the son of David? They recognized the miracles as signs associated with the coming of the Messiah. And the Pharisees couldn't deny the fact of the miracles, so they rejected the source of the power. And that's when they said, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he does this. The unpardonable sin was to reject the clear display of power by the Holy Spirit through Jesus and to attribute it to Satan. Now, since Jesus isn't physically present with us today, I don't believe it's possible to commit the unpardonable sin, at least as it's described there. However, I do believe there's a sin that can't be forgiven, and it's the final sin of rejecting God's offer of salvation through the death of his son. It's not the sin being described in Matthew 12, but the effects are the same. Lena wants to know, what was the gospel that people were to believe mentioned in Mark 1, verse 15, at the time Jesus mentioned this, since he hadn't yet gone to the cross. Of what were the people to repent? Well, within the immediate context of Mark 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, I think, can help. John was sent to prepare the way for the Lord in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, and his message was that since the Messiah and his kingdom were imminent, the people needed to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, This is what people were indicating with their willingness then to be baptized in, in terms of Uh, The gospel, well, they had the prophets like John the Baptist who called on them to return to the Lord. They also had scripture passages like Isaiah 53 and and Malachi 4 that pictured the need for a substitute to pay for their sins and the need for the people to repent of their sin and return to the Lord. And they also had a picture of God's provision of a substitute in their yearly festivals like Passover and the Day of Atonement. Now, they may not have fully understood all that was involved in the Messiah being both Israel's Savior and King. But all the basic details were there in God's word, and God's expectation in Malachi 4 was to remember the law of Moses and to watch for Elijah, the prophet God would send to preach the message of repentance just before the Messiah arrives. And that's what John the Baptist was fulfilling. Stephen says, I'm interested in reading the books of the Apocrypha. Do you believe that it's beneficial to read these books? If so, what kinds of things should I be on the lookout for that could be unbiblical? There is some benefit to reading some of the books of the Apocrypha. For example, the book of 1 Maccabees provides some important history related to the persecution of the Jewish people by Antiochus Epiphanes, and it also describes how the institution of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication, came about. However, they were left out of the Protestant Bible because there are theological and historical inaccuracies, and that's what you really need to watch out for. For example, The book of Judith has Nebuchadnezzar living in the wrong time period and destroying Nineveh rather than his father. Now, that's a relatively minor historical inaccuracy, but there are greater theological inaccuracies as well. Some have the teaching that uh, the living can offer prayers for the dead or that saints in heaven can intercede for those living on earth. Uh, So you can find some teachings in the Apocrypha that just aren't right or some that even disagree with the rest of the Bible. For example, in Ecclesiasticus, uh, it says the Messiah's reign will last 400 years 
rather than the thousand years described in Revelation 20. Now, there's a number of other similar issues, and my point is the quality and accuracy of those books varies greatly, so just if you're reading them, be sure to read with open eyes. Lena asks, would the common person have had access to the scriptures in Jesus' day? I'm not real versed in any of this history. Thank you for helping me understand the Bible better. Well, the common person in Jesus' day would not have possessed their own copy of the Bible. However, they would have had access to the scriptures in the synagogue where they were read and taught as part of a service. Uh, In Luke 4, Jesus is given a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which he reads. One final point I'd make, though. uh, People not only listened to the word of God being read, but they memorized it and they taught it to their children. Deuteronomy 6 tells them to talk about these commands with their children. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, when she's speaking to Elizabeth, she reflects a passage that shows that she knew the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. All of that to say uh, that she and like the others grew up hearing and memorizing and applying God's word to their life, even if they didn't have their own copy. I love it. Hearing, memorizing, and applying the word. And we hope today's segment on the land and the book has done that for you. By the way, you can email us your question at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional next. The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. John Geiger with you. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, about to open his Bible and share a devotional, and you've titled this thing, The Pass. Charlie, it's football season. I'm thinking uh, maybe the Chicago Bears are going to lose again to the Green Bay Packers. That kind of pass? Not that kind of pass, John, but I think people will be surprised. Okay. Well, we'll give you some time to get ready as we pause for this testimony from an Israel traveler who wants to share this with you and me. I'm calling from Spokane, Washington, and I just wanted to comment that I did go to Israel and took a Holy Land tour about four years ago, and it was life-changing for me to put everything in perspective as far as the Bible went, so it really made an impact on me, and I would suggest that anyone that could by any means get over there and go through that, it would change your life forever. I went to Israel in 1983. Uh, I've taught Sunday school now for probably close to 30 years or more. But going to the Holy Land uh, made such an impact on my life. Now when I'm teaching or when I'm reading the Word of God, I can see the areas that I saw back that long ago and uh, just made it more dear to my heart. All right, I'm looking forward to your devotional, Charlie, from 1 Samuel 13 and 14. You've called it The Pass. I can't wait to hear what you've got. Yeah, well, thanks, John. A few months ago, I did mention in passing some of my favorite places in Israel. Those were the aha places that made a deep impact on my life, especially during my early trips. Many aren't known to the average listener. So for the next four weeks, I want to take you to some of my aha places in the land. And today's journey takes us to one simply called The Pass. Uh, Be sure to wear a good pair of walking shoes and have a full bottle of water because this is one of the most difficult hikes I've ever done. Back in 1982, on my very first trip to Israel, our instructor at the Institute of Holy Land Studies offered to take some of us on optional hikes during our free time. I volunteered for every single one. One particular hike looked like it would be rather easy. He simply called it our Geba Mikmash Walk. On a map, those two towns, now known by their Arabic names Jabba and Mukmas, are only a mile and a half apart. Even allowing for winding paths and roads, it looked like we could drive there after breakfast 
and be back in plenty of time before lunch. Little did I know that the walk would take about eight hours. We were dropped off near Jabba, biblical Geba, and hiked out to an overlook where we could look over to see Mukmas. Between where we were standing in that town was a steep ravine with almost sheer cliffs on both sides. Off to our left, the two sides of the ravine gradually dropped down to a spot where one could cross from one side to the other. This, I learned, is described several times in the Bible simply as the pass. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's go back to those sheer cliffs. The cliffs are so remarkable that the people of Israel had given them names. Here's how they're described in 1 Samuel 14, verses 4 and 5. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other to the south toward Geba. Bozes means muddy or slippery, and Sena means thorny or brambly. Uh, Look again at these two cliff faces, each over a hundred feet high. Imagine trying to cross from here to the other side. You would need to pick your way down an almost vertical cliff face named Thorny. And then once you got to the bottom, you'd need to climb the other cliff face named Slippery. You don't need to stand here too long until you look to the west where those sides of the cliff drop down and realize that a two-mile detour through the pass is probably a much easier and safer alternative. Who in the right mind would try to cross out here where the cliffs are so high and steep? Now, our goal today is not to hike from Geba to Michmash through the pass. Rather, I wanted to bring us out here to focus on an event in the Bible where the pass and these cliffs play a crucial role. It was definitely an aha moment for me the first time I saw it. The event is in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and Saul's fighting the Philistines who've come into the hill country to make short work of his new kingdom. When the battle begins, Saul's camped in Michmash across the way, while the Philistines had established an outpost here at Geba. Saul's son Jonathan attacked and overran the Philistine garrison. Saul claimed the victory, but immediately made a strategic retreat to Gilgal down by Jericho to wait for Samuel to show up and bless him. The Philistines responded by sending a massive force into the hill country to crush the rebellion. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, they went up and camped at Michmash. The Philistines occupied Saul's former headquarters at Michmash, right across the way, forcing Saul to have to fight his way back up from Gilgal should he ever try to retake that town. Saul's army began to disintegrate. The writer of Samuel explained, When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul's army took to hiding in the many caves and thickets of brush dotting the canyons out in the wilderness, or some fled all the way across the Jordan River. Things looked bad for Saul, but the Philistines weren't through. With their main base at Michmash, the Philistines sent raiding parties to the north, south, and west, plundering the land. For added assurance, they also posted a detachment of soldiers just across the valley from where we're now standing. Chapter 13 ends by noting that a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Over there on the other side of these cliffs, they positioned a small detachment in the unlikely event that the Israelites would somehow try to launch a surprise attack by climbing these cliffs. Saul managed to return to his capital with his depleted army, but they were bottled up while the Philistines ransacked the land. Jonathan decided something needed to be done, so he and his armor bearer came here to the spot where we're now standing. 
Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Now we pass over those words in our Bibles, but look at this valley. Jonathan almost seems to be proposing a suicide mission. Let's climb down this cliff and then scale the cliff on the other side. And if we somehow make it to the top, the two of us can then take on the entire Philistine detachment camped up there. Ever wonder how two men could defeat an entire army? Well, they didn't exactly. As they climbed up the cliff face on the other side, the detachment of soldiers over there didn't know there were only two men because they couldn't see over the steep slope and down the cliff face. The Bible says Jonathan and his armor bearer revealed themselves to the Philistines. I suspect they shouted up to those on top, Hey, you better watch out. We're coming. The Philistines responded, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. They thought it was a feeble attack by an unknown number of Israelites. Likely the commander sent a group of soldiers over the brow of the hill out of their sight to confront the attackers, fighting, and then silence. More soldiers were sent, then more. Each time the fighting ended with the screams of the Philistine soldiers falling to their deaths until 20 had been killed. Panicked, the remaining soldiers ran back to the main camp to announce that the Hebrews by now they imagine maybe hundreds or even thousands have launched a surprise attack at the one spot lightly defended. In a matter of minutes, they could be right here, right in the center of the camp. Run, flee, get out while the getting's good. A God-sent panic struck the Philistines and they started to abandon camp. A sentry at Gibeah reported panic movement and eventually Saul's forces began their pursuit, helped by Israelite soldiers who had previously been in hiding. The battle began right here in front of us with two men climbing down and then up the cliff face and engaging in hand-to-hand combat with 20 Philistine soldiers sent down from above. Before the day was over, the battle involved all the Israelites and spread from here all the way down toward the coastal plain. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a favorite place because it's one of those aha moments during my time in Israel. Now, I believe the Bible, but I had to admit there were passages that seemed to make no sense. How could two men defeat an entire army? And then when I stood here and read the account, the light bulb went off. Of course it happened because the Philistines didn't know it was only two men. They thought all the Israelites who had gone into hiding were attacking at that one spot where they were most vulnerable. It took courage on the part of Jonathan and his armor bearer. But every detail of the story makes perfect sense when you stand here and view the actual spot where it took place. And that's the lesson I want to leave you with today. When you read the Bible, Focus on the details. They help explain the text. And if you come to some spots where the text doesn't seem to make sense, take a deep breath and remind yourself that it's because you don't yet have all the facts. Once the facts are known, those apparent problem passages can be answered. Walk away from this spot today, resolving in your heart that you can and will trust the Bible. A great way to wrap up today's program. Thank you, Charlie. I'm John Geiger. Always glad to connect with you. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.